MIB Agents Osteobites webinar and podcast presents the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope each week. This week, we're talking with Dr. Sumit Gupta, MD, PhD, oncologist and clinician investigator at the Hospital for Sick Children. Um, and I'll start by saying welcome to Osteobites, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, today, I have a lovely coffee because it's rainy and cold in Vermont, and I had a granola bar, but I ate it. <laughs> and uh, I think we're all ready to tuck in for this incredibly important talk with Sumit Gupta, MD, PhD, about long-term mental health outcomes in adolescents and young adults with cancer. Sumit Gupta is a staff oncologist and clinician investigator at the Hospital for Sick Children. He's an associate professor at both the, at both the Faculty of Medicine and the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, and is an adjunct scientist with the Cancer Research Program at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Services. Our panel today are two veterans Amy Woodcheck, physician's assistant and childhood cancer survivor, and MIB junior board member and osteo-warrior Mia Sandino, who's sunning it up. <laughs> and I'm your <laughs> host, Ann Graham, executive director and founder of MIB Agents. MIB Agents is a pediatric osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for our community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers with the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments and a cure for osteosarcoma. MIB makes it better in three ways, through direct patient and family support with many programs to ensure that no one walks alone through this disease, through education, including our annual Factor Osteosarcoma Conference, Osteobites, our testing and research directory, and our book, Osteosarcoma from our families to yours, which is a free download on our website, or you can also get a book. Uh, it's available in Spanish and Chinese as well. And through research by funding it, sharing it, supporting it, supporting the researchers and physicians who undertake it. And um, we're uh, here with uh, the education piece today on Osteobites with Dr. Gupta. Could you get us started by introducing yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Anne. And uh, thank you to everyone and to Osteobites for the invitation. It's it's quite literally one of my favorite things to talk to um, groups like this. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Sumit Gupta. I'm a pediatric oncologist at the Hospital of Sick Children in Toronto, up here in Canada, as Anne said. Um, I may pretty much only treat leukemia and lymphoma anymore. So it's been a while since I've treated a, um, a person with osteosarcoma, um, but I'm very happy to be here. I do a lot of health services research and one of those research projects is what we'll talk about today. Uh, I'm Mia Sandino. I am a junior board member I'm beyond proud to be a junior board member. I love working with MIB. Um, I am currently a sophomore at the University of Washington in Seattle, but maybe transferring to UCLA. I hear back at the end of this month. <laughs> um, I have I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in September of 2018, and I'm still here and happy to be talking to all of you. I'm Amy Woodcheck. I am a physician assistant, and most recently uh, have worked with pediatric cancer for the last almost 11 years and will be 38 years um, cancer survivor in this August. So excited to make it better. 
So again, thank you for the opportunity. So we're going to talk today about um, some work that we did up here in, in Ontario, Canada, looking at the long-term mental health outcomes among survivors of adolescent and young adult cancer. So not only osteosarcoma, but certainly survivors of osteosarcoma were included in this. Um, whenever I'm talking to a group that includes um, people in the attendees who may be survivors themselves, family members of patients, even maybe actively undergoing treatment. I always sort of put out the caveat that, you know, it it sometimes is kind of jarring to hear things like percentages and groups and things like that when you realize that that's referring to maybe a group that you're part of as well. So just to know that that, that can be jarring um, about anything, let alone when it's something that's relatively personal um, and still stigmatized like mental health. So just as a quick caveat before we go in. So um, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about a research project of ours up here in Ontario called the Impact Cohort that we've done a lot of adolescent and young adults cancer uh, research with already and are continuing to do. We'll talk about the specific study that is of interest today, um, looking at mental health related results um, on outcomes using this impact cohort, um, and a little bit about future directions and conclusions, but really those first two are going to be the big ones. This is meant to be super informal and I've purposely kept this um, relatively short because I think the, the main um, learning and the main value is the discussion that comes after presentations like these. So the impact cohort um, is short for what we uh, call the initiative to maximize progress in AYA cancer treatment, um, which took us weeks and weeks and weeks to come up with an acronym for this project, but that's the best that we came up with. So what did we want to do? We basically wanted to create a cohort of adolescents and young adults treated with cancer, but have it really, really detailed so that a bunch of researchers with ideas on whatever AYA cancer specific uh, topic that they wanted could actually use this resource to try to answer some questions that were important to patients, to survivors, to families, to clinicians, to health policymakers. So, um, how did we do that? Well, essentially, we took two data sources and we combined them and we linked them to a third data source. So I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes talking about what that involved, just so you have a sense of um, the strength of these kind of data, but also some of the limitations as well. So we are really lucky here in Ontario because we have a provincial pediatric cancer registry here. Um, and so what that it's called Pagonis by the Pediatric Oncology Group of Ontario. And so in there are five childhood cancer treatment uh, units in Ontario. And in each of them is someone who works for this pediatric cancer registry who attends rounds and who, you know, is in the hospital themselves. And they basically actively collect data on every new kid that's diagnosed. Um, that includes, you know, demographic information, treatment information, outcome information, you know, really, really detailed stuff. So when we're talking about AYA, though, only about half of 15 to 17 year olds with cancer end up at pediatric institutions in Canada. And, and the Canadian system, as you're probably aware, is, a, is pretty different than the American healthcare system. So it's all one big system, right? There's not HMOs, there's not mm, for-profit hospitals or anything like that. So pediatric hospitals, by policy, don't really treat anyone who's under 18. That's really rare. So 18 year olds go to adult hospitals, essentially. Um, and like I said, the Pagonis, this registry collects really detailed information. 
So there's nothing like that for um, adolescents or young adults who are treated in adult hospitals. So this is a pediatric specific um, database, which kind of illustrates one of the general problems in AYA cancer right there, right? AYAs are scattered in terms of where they get their healthcare, right? Community hospitals, um, cancer hospitals, university hospitals, pediatric versus adult, kind of all over the place. So we, our idea was, well, can we get that same information from, um, from the adult hospitals. So what we did is we identified using the overall Ontario Cancer Registry, all 15 to 20 year old, 21 year olds who had been diagnosed anywhere in Ontario with leukemia, lymphoma, any sarcoma, including osteosarcoma or testicular cancer over a 20 year period, 1992 to 2012. And then we trained people to actually go to each and every single one of those hospitals. I think it ended up being like 80 hospitals um, in total, get the charts of those patients and abstract the same type of detailed data that we had in the pediatric cancer registry. Um, and we did a lot of validation back and forth to make sure that the data we were getting was correct and, and accurate. And so when you put those two things together, you have, again, this pretty detailed, comprehensive, what we call population-based, right? So a lot of problems in, in a lot of studies about AYA cancer, um, especially when it comes to mental health, as we'll talk about, is, you know, if you go out and try to recruit a bunch of AYA cancer survivors to participate in your study, the people who say yes and participate are almost certainly very different than the people who say no, right? And so you can't necessarily generalize your results to all AYA survivors. So this was a way of identifying everyone in the province, essentially. So we put those two data sources together. And then what we could do here in Ontario, which again is pretty lucky and unique, is um, link that to healthcare data. So again, up here in Canada, we have universal health insurance. Um, so, you know, um, whether you call that socialism or not, well, there's a political debate and we won't uh, get into that. But essentially what that means is that the government is the payer for all healthcare, right? So you walk into any health, uh, hospital, you go to any doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately who covers those costs is the government, which means that a whole bunch of administrative data is required for um, the running of that healthcare system. And it all ends up with the government, with the Ministry of Health. So, you know, if I, as a doctor, family doctor working in my clinic, see a patient for, you know, a physical annual physical exam, in order for me to get paid, I have to submit a claim to the government to say, I saw patient number X and I diagnosed her with Y and I did the following procedures, annual physical exam, and that goes to the government and that's how the government knows to pay me X amount of dollars, right? And the same thing happens for hospitalizations and emergency room visits and all of that sort of stuff. So about 30 years ago, some really smart people went, hey, that would be really amazing in terms of a research resource as well. So folks at um, ICES, the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, which as a side note, we used to call ISIS until about five, 10 years ago when that seemed like not such a good idea anymore. So now we just say ICES. Um, but to establish this, um, this uh, research body that, you know, preserving privacy and preserving anonymity gets copies of all of those billing data of all of that administrative data 
and links it all together on an individual basis. So somewhere in there is, you know, a record that's me that says, you know, Ontario number, person number X, you know, and on December 14th, he went to doctor number Y and was seen and the billing claim that submitted said this. And then a week later, he went to the emergency room, right? And he, the emergency doctor number this, diagnosed him with code this, right? And two weeks later, he ended up uh, admitted to a hospital and that hospital discharge record said the following diagnoses happened kind of thing. So all of that data for the entire population rests in one place. And again, copies of that for research purposes live at ICES. Um, so the reason I spent a lot of time going over that is it's pretty core to the methodology we used when looking at mental health, as you see. You know, for the impact database, it means we could find deaths and that we could find late events. So someone who, you know, even if they had a relapse of their cancer, say, but it wasn't in their original cancer treatment hospital, we could still kind of figure that out from using these linkages. Um, okay, that animation did work. But so in the end, eventually, when we put this whole core together, we had about 3,000 AYA, 50 to 21 year olds. And it allowed us to, you know, do all sorts of studies across the cancer journey, right? So we looked at the effect of where you were treated on cancer outcomes. And this is a longer list now, but, you know, does it matter if you were treated in a pediatric versus an adult hospital or a community versus a cancer hospital, if you had Hodgkin's lymphoma or if you had a type of leukemia, did your chance of beating your disease differ depending on where you were? And did the treatment you get differ depending on where you were? You know, we also looked at end of life outcomes and some of that stuff is just being published right now. But for this talk, what I wanted to concentrate on is work that we did looking at the survivorship phase and looking at mental health outcomes. So what did we do here? We took everyone, we were interested in survivorship. And so the main way we sort of um, identified that in the literature is we have this term called five-year survivors, right? Because these are folks who five years after their original cancer diagnosis are, are still alive and kicking. And so the chance of suffering another cancer relapse is not zero, but pretty darn close, right? Um, and so those we can sort of confidently say are cancer survivors, not to say that they're free of, um, of the ramifications of their di the original disease. And so what we wanted to do then is examine their mental health outcomes, because as I'm sure we'll talk about in, in the discussion, you know, um, that's a relatively neglected um, aspect of survivorship. And so we wanted to draw some attention to that. And so we looked at two overall mental health outcomes. We looked at what we called low severity events, which was the rate of outpatient events for mental health reasons. So what we said is basically, if you went to either a family doctor or an outpatient psychiatrist, right? The psychiatrist's office, um, and that was for a mental health reason. So obviously if you went to a psychiatrist, that was for a mental health reason. If you went to a family doctor and the family doctor in their billing code said, coded anything that could go, could fit under a mental health umbrella, we counted that as well. And so we looked at the rate of how often people were going for those visits. Um, so that was our low severity event. And then we also had a high severity outcome, which was a severe mental health event, which was what we defined as any visit to either the emergency room or an actual admission for the hospital for a mental health reason, right? Which I think we'd all agree by definition, 
one would consider severe, right? So what we also did then is we wanted to not just look at these outcomes within the survivors, but compare that to how that works in the general population, right? Because we all know mental health is a major issue for lots of people who haven't gone through a cancer diagnosis. So we wanted to get a sense of not just what was going on in the cancer population, but what that was compared to the general population. So we also assembled what's called a matched general population control. Um, and what that means is coming up with a cohort that kind of looks like your cohort of cancer survivors in every way, except they didn't have cancer, right? So for example, for every cancer survivor that we had in our cohort, we identified, say, everyone who was the same biologic sex as they were and born in the same year they were and lived in the same, you know, what uh, we call postal codes, the equivalent to zip codes, right? Um, in the same sort of say one or two adjacent zip codes. And we randomly selected five of them, right? And th those become the match controls for that one survivor, right? Because they kind of look um, and are similar to the cancer survivor, except for the fact that they didn't have cancer. And so we did that for every single cancer survivor. And that's how you come up with your, what we call your matched general population control cohort or controls is sort of the, the um, methodological term we use for that. So I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail. I'm just gonna go right into the high level results. So this is, um, this is our low severity event. So this is what's called a mean cumulative function curve. So basically, we start with your follow-up time and as we follow you along you know every time you see a family doctor or a psychiatrist for a mental health reason that gets counted right and so at year one if you've had one visit it goes up by one right and as soon as you have two more it goes up by two and so it just kind of increases over time um this is the mean of that so looking at the average number of visits over time of the whole population. It starts at time zero, but remember time zero is actually five years after your cancer diagnosis, right? So time zero isn't when you were diagnosed, it was on average five years later. The blue is the cancer survivors and the red is those matched controls, the cancer-free controls. And so what you can tell, this isn't really surprising to anyone who's been in this or who works um, in this field, but that the rate of um, low severity mental health visits was higher in cancer survivors than in controls. But I think one of the things I want you to realize as well is, you know, notice that those curves keep getting farther and farther apart until at least 10 or 15 years after the time zero, right? You can argue that between maybe year 15 and 20, they're more parallel, so they're not getting farther apart anymore, but they are kind of getting farther apart before that, which means that the increased rate we are seeing in cancer survivors is there all the way up to at least 15 years after time zero, which is 20 years after their actual original diagnosis, right? So we're not talking about a short-term problem here. And when you actually crunch the numbers, it's actually a 30% higher rate amongst the survivors versus the controls. So this is now what we call a time to event. And this is now looking at the, um, the severe events. So this is a little bit different than, than the last graph. This is basically, you know, the whole population that we were studying as you go along in time, which is at the bottom there, 
if someone has had a severe event, boom, we count them and we say, okay, that one person out of 7,000 has had an event. And so the, the um, line goes up to account that the proportion has increased, right? So every time that line goes up, it means that someone has had a severe event in that cohort. And what you can see, again, the red are the cancer survivors and the blue are the control cancer-free um, folks, is that those curves are pretty different, right? That the, um, the incidence of severe events was far higher in cancer survivors than in controls. And this, when you crunch the numbers, it was 22% uh, higher risk of severe mental health event. And this probably underestimates the actual burden because you know, it, it, in this sort of statistical analysis, whether you have one severe event or whether you have 10 severe events, you still just count in the same way, right? Like once you have one event, you go from zero to one, you get counted, and then if you have 10 more in the next five years, that doesn't affect this curve, right? So if anything, this probably underestimates things. So a couple of other things. Um, this kind of surprised us, and it's a little bit of a scary finding, but I'm going to put it in perspective too. Like we then kind of broke things up a little bit more to look at, okay, mental health is actually a pretty broad field, right? Like what is actually going on here in a little bit more detail? Um, I forgot to put it on this slide to type it in, but when we look at the low severity events, most of those were attributed to anxiety type of um, mental health conditions, which again, probably isn't that surprising, but there were, you know, mood disorders like depression or substance abuse that accounted for some some of that increased risk, but mainly it was a, um, it was um, anxiety-related disorders. Um, when we broke the severe events down, what kind of jumped out, and we're not the first people to show this, interestingly, is that survivors were at a 2.3 times higher risk of having a psychosis-related severe event. Um, and so that includes things like schizophrenia or other types of psychotic disorders. It's really important to keep that in context, though. The absolute risk is still small. So I don't want people who are survivors to think like, oh, my God, I'm going to develop schizophrenia. Like, no, um, no, you don't need to worry about that tremendously. So the risk amongst survivors was about a 1.7% risk at 15 years versus 0.7% in the non-cancer uh, or the cancer-free controls. In a relative term though, that's pretty impressive even if the absolute risk remains small. Um, and so we're honestly not quite sure what's uh, going on there, but we've seen that in other populations we've studied and that has been noted by some other people in other countries as well. So the, I think this is the final big result that I wanted to, um, to show you guys. So when we went back to the low severity events, um, so this is the rate of outpatient visits, we wanted to compare people who had gotten their cancer treatment in pediatric hospitals versus adult hospitals, right? And what we found was actually a pretty big difference that the folks who were treated in adult hospitals actually had a much higher rate of outpatient mental health visits way after they graduated from the pediatric hospital, right? So this is outside of their cancer treatment than those who were treated as 
adults. Um, and so there's something going on there. And even when we did what's called a multivariable analysis, where you adjust for all the other differences you can think of that might be, but might exist between people treated at AYA treated at a pediatric hospital and AYA treated at an adult hospital, this still was a significant and large difference. And so in the discussion, I think I've got some points in, in a subsequent slide, we can talk about some of the reasons that might be. And it was actually, like I said, uh, a substantial and 80% higher rate of mental health visits among AYA treated adult centers as compared to those who had their initial cancer therapy in a pediatric center. Okay, so a couple of things um, to note. So we basically showed a higher risk of mental health related events amongst cancer survivor, AYA cancer survivors, both low severity and high severity. And that may be an underestimate for some of the reason I talked to you, but also we could not picked up, remember, this was all billing data, right? So we would not have picked up mental health services provided by non-physicians, right? So social workers, counselors, psychologists, all of that sort of stuff, we wouldn't have been able to get that information. Or for AYA who had mental health needs, but who didn't access the system, right? If there's someone suffering from severe anxiety or severe depression, and they never go see a doctor about it, that person doesn't show up in these data, right? Because you have to have actually accessed the healthcare system in order for us to have been able to pick you up. So um, what are some of the maybe take home um, messages and what can we do? And this is where I struggle a little bit because I, I, I don't have magic answers here, right? What I will say is awareness is not a small thing, right? So anytime I've presented this work or similar work that we've done in say family members of cancer patients and things like that, and I present to a group that actually includes those type of people in the audience, you know, people start talking about their own stories and, and their own experiences and just people knowing, both AYA themselves, knowing that this is a risk um, in, in survivorship, as well as clinicians and healthcare providers knowing that this is a, um, an issue in survivorship, I think is actually powerful. It doesn't solve the problem by any means, but it is powerful. Um, the other question is, do we incorporate it into late effect guidelines, right? So there are guidelines that exist there on what sort of things you should look for for patients who um, are cancer survivors, right? And some of them are pretty sophisticated in that, you know, if you got this chemotherapy that can affect your heart, you should get an echocardiogram to check out your heart every five years or so. That's pretty relevant for osteosarcoma patients, obviously, right? Like maybe those guidelines should also incorporate mental health screening as well, right? Now that we're accumulating evidence. You know, often when I'm talking to uh, patients of mine in survivorship, you know, I often say like, if you had a heart problem because of your chemotherapy, we would think nothing of getting a cardiologist involved to help us out and help us to management. Mental health late effects should be no different, right? Like there shouldn't be either any, any stigma or any reluctance to involve a professional in that aspect of your care, you know, just the same as it would if you were running into a heart problem or a lung problem or something else, right? I think the other intriguing thing is, does the level of support you receive during therapy actually impact on your long-term mental health? And we can't prove that or disprove that using these data, but it's certainly intriguing, right? So in pediatric centers, and I don't know how many um, of the folks listening either receive their care or, or actually work in adult versus pediatric centers. So in ped centers, we tend to think we have terrible psychosocial resources, right? And we always want more. We want more social workers, more psychologists, more psychiatrists. And, and certainly like my center is no different than that. I think we're very underserviced. 
but it's generally a different ball game than what's available to the adult centers, right? And that's just a volume thing, right? It's not necessarily that adult centers want to concentrate less on, like the number of patients I see in my average pediatric oncology clinic is quite a bit less than what an average adult oncologist sees in their clinic, right? And so there just is a different level of resources. I do wonder, although I can't prove it using these data, whether that plays into the the risk and the difference in risk we're seeing in long-term mental health between pediatric-treated and adult-treated AYA, right? There's actually shockingly little out there to prove or to investigate whether getting mental health support and resources during your active cancer treatment impacts your chance in a positive way of developing mental health um, challenges as a survivor. But that, if that association is true, if we can make that assumption, then that might be one reason to see that difference in long-term outcomes between pediatric and adult-treated patients. So um, the study was just published, I can't remember, a couple of months ago, and, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which does a lot of great stuff, not just in research, and, but for patients, um, they actually chose the... the um, uh, the paper to discuss in a blog um, between uh, two physicians um, talking about the impacts and the implications and what maybe we should do based on that. So if people are interested and they, they uh, do, it's very sort of, uh, it's not just for clinicians, it's for anyone. Uh, and they do a nice sort of 20 minutes on talking in more detail about the results and what some of the implications might be in, in, in within an American context as well. So if people are interested in hearing other people who maybe are a little bit less biased than I am talk about um, these results and the implications, you can follow this link um, and access that as well. So um, huge, huge, huge number of people to thank. The main person would be um, Ritha Day, who's actually a master's student of mine who did all of this work as her part of her, uh, as her master's thesis, as well as a whole host of people um, there uh, who played a critical role. And of course, all the patients and families who these data actually represent. These are all the funders of the of the work on the right here. And with that, I will stop and uh, happy to answer any questions or even just listen to the discussion as well. Okay. Wow. That's um that that was a lot of work in that study <laughs> together, but what a remarkable thing in Ontario that you have access to all this data. That's a powerful thing. Yeah, it's 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 such a blessing, right? And 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 it allows us to. And, and don't get me wrong, it's no like like magic bullet, right? The data has lots of limitations, as I as sure. I mentioned as well. But you know, one of the studies that we published in in JCO a little while ago. Um, this focused on childhood cancer. So we did a paper um, about childhood cancer survivors that followed this exact same thing. But we also did a paper that came out a couple of years ago where, you know, we identified we identified all the childhood cancer patients from their birth records. We could identify all of their moms, and from the moms' other birth records, we could identify all of the siblings. And we actually looked at moms and siblings' mental health after you know a family childhood yeah. cancer diagnosis going forward. So there's all sorts of amazing things that we can do with these data. It is it is quite the blessing. I mean, really, you just need more people collating all that all that data into. Because I mean, I have I had so many questions that are sort of like, this is the pebble and all the rings 
that come off of this right. particular research, there's so much that can be done. I mean, you, you just said siblings and parents. I mean, it, it, it really, we say this and it sounds so cliche, but it is so true that the whole family suffers with pediatric cancer. Yep. I mean, it's, for us, we're, we're completely biased on, on osteosarcoma. So, you know, when, when, when the child gets osteosarcoma, the whole family gets it totally. and the whole family really suffers. Um, so it would be tremendous to have that, the, the rings from the pebble of, of this research um, expand out and, and touch on what else is happening in the family. And along those lines, I had a question about, um, about that, did do you did you look at? I'm, I'm guessing the answer is probably no. So I apologize for asking this question no, in advance. Good. But did did you track if the if the AYA had any mental health issues prior to the diagnosis? Yeah. And, we, and sorry, sorry on, and, my, and my second one is: is there is there any evidence for a genetic component of mental health from the parent or? Okay, or a grandparent. So, so that's super. Uh, both really good questions, and we actually did look at both of those in one way or another. So, we did. Um, I didn't get into it in in the slides, but we tried to see if we could identify a group of AYA who were more at risk of having long-term mental health outcomes. Um, and so, you know, if you were going to do an intervention, who should you target it to, perhaps, right? So the interesting thing, and we found this in the um, in the child of cancer survivor population as well, you know, we went into it thinking that, you know, if you got diagnosed with a cancer that had a worse prognosis, if you got diagnosed with a cancer that you know, required more intensive treatment, right? Like a bone marrow transplant or super intensive chemotherapy or um, a limb amputation, cancer surgery or something like that, that your risk of mental health problem, uh, issues or challenges would be far higher. That didn't pan out fascinating enough, right? And really that had no impact whether you got treated intensively versus less intensively, whether you got diagnosed with a cancer that had a 90% cure rate versus a 20% cure rate, what mattered was demographics, right? Females more are higher risk than males, low socioeconomic status um, at higher risk than uh, the higher uh, socioeconomic status. And if you had mental health challenges prior to diagnosis, you were way more likely to suffer um, from mental health challenges going forward. And, you know, maybe like when I first started to see those, um, when I first started to see those types of results, I actually thought like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised at this, right? Because, you know, basically what my interpretation of that, although I can't say for sure, because with these data is that there is just something about the cancer journey, right? And whether that journey involves a bone marrow transplant or two months of chemotherapy, right? Like there's just something about being labeled as cancer, having cancer, going through the cancer journey that increases your risk of mental health challenges, right? And if your risk was small to begin with, then your risk goes up that much percent. If your risk was high to begin with for whatever, then your risk just goes up that much more percent. That's my interpretation. I can't say that for sure, but I think that is one message that we've tried to disseminate to providers, right? Because even myself, I was guilty of this before these results became clear to me as well, right? Like, 
especially in the pediatric cancer space, like, oh, this kid's got Wilm tumor, right? Like it's a 95% uh, it's a ninety-five percent prognosis, right? And the kid's totally going to be fine. It's a little sniff of chemo and then the kid's fine, right? And then a mom totally falls apart both like during and even five years afterwards, right? And, and so I think that kind of thing makes a lot more sense to me now, given these data. So what surprised you the most about the data that you found? Mm -hmm. Uh, what surprised me the most, you know what, actually, it was probably what I just talked about, which actually, like I said, the more people I talk to, and the more cancer survivors and families I've talked to is maybe not a surprise to them. But to me, the surprise was that, you know, cancer, like variables about the cancer itself, what kind of cancer you have, or how you were treated, have seemed to have very little effect on how at risk you are of mental health um, challenges going forward. That was the most surprising to me. Collaborating this information, do you think it would be beneficial to start any and all patients with upfront psychi psychiatric or psychologic support? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, there's a whole body of research going on right now that I, I don't partake in myself, but the idea of screening tools, right? Like trying to screen families at the beginning um, to try to classify families into like high risk or high need for psychosocial support, um, medium risk or low risk or whatever sort of categorization you're gonna use. Because unfortunately, right, like very few places, especially here have the kind of resources to be able to do intensive psychosocial interventions with every single family, right? Like, yes, we have a social worker that touches base at the beginning a couple of times, et cetera, et cetera. But there just isn't that type of resource and especially in the adult centers, right? So um, I think ideally it would be great if we had a intensive psychosocial intervention at every major time point in the cancer journey, right? At diagnosis, at relapse, maybe, you know, at the end of treatment, because, you know, unless you've been through the cancer journey yourself, people don't really realize how stressful the end of therapy is as well, right? Um, so all of these sort of things, we just don't have the resources. And frankly, I'm not aware of any hospital that has the resources to be able to do something like that. So do I think it's a great idea? Yes. I think with the realities of the resources we have right now, the screening aspect of it is probably the way to go, um, but people are trying to figure that out. We have a question that just came in that would, that's kind of an interesting one. Within our junior board, they're all on our junior board, like Mia, we're survivors, we're in treatment, we're siblings of, of kids who have passed from osteosarcoma. And our, our junior board meetings often turn into just, <laughs> a, I'm going to overstate this, but like a mini therapy session, sure. right? So like, and it's so helpful. I mean, I survived osteosarcoma and, and as it was when I was in treatment in a pediatric cancer center, the kids on the junior board, the young adults on the junior board help me get through. And I think we all really help and support each other. So after our last junior board meeting, which was such a great junior board meeting, it was, um, the question came up, what it was a say this, not that. So what did people say to you when you were in treatment? Mm. And what are the stupid things people said? <laughs> and the uh. things that maybe hurt you, the hurtful things people said, and what should they say instead? And this conversation was robust and heartfelt and 
funny and sad and all of the all of the feelings. When we hung up from that call, we, a couple of junior board members emailed me and said, we need a wider support group. And it would just be great to, to have this conversation with other people who have been through mm -hmm. this. So the question that, that came in is, um, what do we do now to support AYA, AYA survivors? And any thoughts on this young adult survivor support group? Yeah, I mean, you know, anecdotes like yours are not uncommon, right? Like a lot of people find a lot of comfort in these type of support groups, right? And I think there is a power to knowing that you are not alone, right? And that, you know, this type of issues, you know, with its anxiety or depression or whatever is not just you. It's like, a, it's a cancer thing potentially, right? Um, so I think there is power in that. Um, you know, I, again, it's not entirely my field of research, you know, the, there's, but I know the literature that, the literature just show that those kind of support groups have a long lasting beneficial impact on, on mental health. I don't think is there yet. Certainly there's very powerful anecdotes like the ones you just provided. The, the one hesitation I have is that, you know, I think it is, only a smaller subset of any group of patients or people, um, but any uh, particularly survivors that have the wherewithal and the motivation and the insight to be able to seek out that type of resource, let alone create it if it doesn't happen, right? And, and again, like I sort of referred to at the beginning, that's probably a different portion of the survivors and not necessarily representative of the whole survivor group, right? So what I do worry about in terms of support um, systems and things like that is that they, they probably work really well for some survivors and not at all for others and aren't even on the radar of some survivors who may still be actually suffering nonetheless with, with great mental health needs. Yeah. Uh, I have a question that came in. Uh, can you please clarify your point about the correlation between accessing mental health support slash treatment while in treatment compared to AYAs who did not access mental health support slash treatment while actively in oncology treatment? Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, I think the, um, the best way I can clarify that is, so going back to the data, what did we actually find? We found that um, that patients treated at pediatric centers had a lower rate of long-term mental health visits than patients treated at adult centers, right? So there's some difference between those two populations, the pediatric treated and the adult treated AYA, that's leading to that difference in mental health, um, in mental health visits. Now, it could be a difference between the people themselves, right? Like maybe the people who are end up at a pediatric center are different than the people who end up at an adult center, but we controlled for a lot of that stuff and that difference was still there. So I think what the data um, suggests relatively strongly is that there's some difference about the experience at those two centers that's leading to that difference in long-term mental health. What the data cannot do is tell us what that difference is because we just didn't have that type of granularity. My guess, my hypothesis 
is that it may be a difference in psychosocial care and the level of support received in a pediatric center versus an adult center. But the only way that's true, like, is if the level of support you receive as an active cancer patient positively impacts your long-term result, right? Like that's the only way that my hypothesis can be true is if that assumption is true. And there, it makes sense to me and it probably makes sense to many of you, but there's actually not a lot of data out there to prove that that assumption is true or not. I hope that clarifies things. It does, um, thank you. Yeah. There's a question about if there is any insight into the parallels between increased rate of schizophrenia in AYA patients with other illnesses as compared to cancer survivors, or if you had come across that. That is a great um, question. So um, I have not come across that. Um, I'm not a psychiatrist though, right? And I'm certainly not an expert into the um, into why people develop psychotic disorders or not. You know, to me, there are um, sort of three possible explanations. Um, and, and I don't have a, I don't think the data exists out there to distinguish between the, those three. So one possibility is, you know what, maybe we all have a threshold for psychosis in, in our heads, right? And in some people, that threshold is really low for genetic reasons or what have you. And so you're going to develop a psychotic disorder no matter what. And in other people, that threshold is really high, again, for genetic or other reasons, and you're not going to develop a psychotic or, uh, disorder no matter what. But maybe there's a group of people who their threshold is right in the middle. And if you go through life and don't have a major, major stressor, you never surpass that threshold. But if you do have a major stressor, like an AYA cancer diagnosis at the time when people are most predisposed towards developing psychotic disorders anyways, then you do develop it, right? And so that might be one reason is that there's a group of people amongst us all where our thresholds for that is kind of in the middle. I don't know whether that makes sense or not from a genetics and schizophrenia point of view, because that's not my area. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is, you know, a lot of cancer treatments affect your brain, right? And affect your central nervous system. So maybe there's some effect of the treatment itself. We tried to look at that. We didn't really find it. Like, it's not as if we could find a very clear, like, oh, if you got chemotherapy X that we know impacts your brain, then your risk of schizophrenia was really high. So there wasn't anything obvious like that that we could find, but, but that's the second possibility. The third possibility is we know that psychotic disorders have some degree of genetic basis. We know that cancer has some degree of genetic basis, even though we can, we often can't figure out what that is. And it's probably not a ton, depending on what kind of cancer you got. But so maybe there's something shared there, right? Like something genetic slightly increases your chance of cancer and slightly increases your chance of schizo uh, schizophrenia or another psychotic disorder. But again, we kind of looked in the literature and we couldn't find that um, uh, either. So those are the three possibilities that kind of occurred to me. I don't know which, if any of those uh, are true, but but the uh, the comment that the um, the attendee made is a really smart one, right? Because if you also see an increased risk of psychotic disorders in survivors of all these other acute diseases, then that kind of suggests more that it might be possibility one, right? Like that threshold sort of hypothesis that any major event kind of pushes a few people above 
what their threshold is. I had another one come in. Do you know how to find mental health support beyond therapists and psychiatrists in the U.S. for AYA, uh, usually uh, 20-somethings, survivors, specifically PHP or IOP programs? Uh, do, is that person uh, able to, I don't know what uh, PHP or IOP programs refers to. I can certainly try to address the first part of that question, but maybe if they can type in the chat um, what they mean by that. So, I, you know, that that's a million dollar question, right? Um, I don't think there is enough out there because, you know, what I've heard from a lot of my, even in the Canadian system is like, yeah, you know, like I went to a person X, but they don't really like they don't get the cancer part of things, right? Like I really want to talk to someone who gets what I went through as a cancer patient a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, right? And so, and people who have that type of specialization, right? Like helping people post are, are few and far between. Um, so I don't have a really good answer for you. You know, I think, um, however, what I would suggest, and clearly you've done that a little bit already by being part of something like osteobites is, you know, whether it's osteobites, you know, that concentrates in osteosarcoma or whether it's some of the bigger AYA cancer organizations. So, you know, there's, um, I'm going to screw up the name, but maybe not, there's Teen Cancer America, right? Um, which is pretty large, right? Um, and even contacting an organization like that, um, that may have resources, even if it's a patient, like a patient advocacy support group, or, uh, you know, maybe they're aware or can connect you to people in your local jurisdiction as well that might have ideas of individuals who have sort of that skill set, both in, in mental health counseling or mental health support and the cancer area. It's not a super, um, super satisfying answer, Suzanne, but I think that's because there's not a super satisfying answer out there, unfortunately. We have so far to go. Yep. <laughs> um, what at, at the locations where your study was conducted, what is the routine psychosocial care that is available and provided? Great question. We don't know that. So the limitation of the administrative uh, data is we don't have access to that level of granularity, right? So again, these patients would have been treated over 80 hospitals, right? And we didn't have any way of, and over 20 years as well, right? So I strongly suspect that the level of psychosocial care across 80 pediatric and adult hospitals over 20 years would have varied tremendously from zero to quite intensive ones, hopefully getting better over the 20 years as well, but probably in some places, not so much, right? So um, it's a great question. And what to, and if we knew that, that would allow us to answer one of the previous hypotheses, right? Like if we could say like, oh, these hospitals had really, really great psychosocial care and these hospitals had really, really crappy psychosocial care, let's compare those. We absolutely would have loved to do that. We just didn't have that data available. Okay, we have eight minutes, so we've got to, we've got we've got to ask quick questions. <laughs> um, I've got a quick I've got one that's not a quick question, but um, in short, it's a family whose uh, son was treated as an adult because he was just over the eighteen year old limit, and a, a friend of theirs was just at the eighteen and could be treated as an AYA. The difference in experiences and the ability to provide support to the AYA who was treated as an AYA versus the AYA who was treated as an adult was palatable 
Um, do you think uh, 18 is the wrong age to be considered an adult? Uh, or do you think it should be considerably higher? What age is appropriate to kind of be the cutoff? Yeah, great, great, great question. You know, I um, that, that question reminds me a number of years ago, I had a, um, a 16 or a 17 year old young lady who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's that I looked after. And like, oh, I think six months or nine months later, one of her best friends was diagnosed with Hodgkin's as well, but was 18. And so went to an adult hospital. And so they made that observation all the time, right? So, you know, in Ontario, I, I'm going to go on a tiny quick seg uh, segue and then I'll come back. So in Ontario, there is no age of consent, for example, right? It's completely, so it's not like once you're 16 or 18 or whatever, you can make your own healthcare decisions. Consent uh, depends on your own capacity. And some people have good capacity to make medical decision makings at 14 and some at 12 and some at 16. And so it's an individual thing. I always think that we should sort of adopt the same thing for what an AYA is, right? Like you might have a super, super, super mature 16, 17 year old who's already like out of school and has their life. And it's like, I don't want all this pediatric crap. I am totally fine taking care of my own health care, right? On the other hand, you might have a 22 year old who, you know, desperately wants the more intensive pediatric type of support that we can offer and wants you know, his mother and father with him at every appointment and all that sort of stuff, right? So I think treating it more as what fits that individual patient's needs makes way more sense than a relatively arbitrary number, whether that's 18 or something else. Now, the devil is in the details. How do you actually operationalize that? I will say for those who aren't aware, so for example, in the UK, they by law, you know, they have TA, what we would call AYA specific units for 18 to 25. And they have a law that's actually well, pretty well followed that any 18 to 25 year old with diagnosed with cancer has to be offered the choice of being treated in one of these units or somewhere else, right? So that's maybe one way of addressing that. Okay. Also from a fellow Canadian, uh, parent of an osteo angel who was treated at Mount Sinai and sick kids. Oh, thank you for all you do. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, and uh, for doing for creating this research and and knowledge base. And by the way, everybody can learn from this. We need to learn from this in the U.S. This is not we're talking about people, not Canadians versus the rest of the world. We're we're talking about humans and AYAs. So really, this is translational research for the world. Um, so uh, she's saying, I know the focus is on survivors, but was there any data done in the Ontario with the bereaved families of the AYAs? I know it takes more people more time, but just curious if there's something down the road with Pogo or SickKids. Yeah, so in, in our, when I had referenced earlier, looking at the moms and siblings of childhood cancer patients, and certainly when we looked at their mental health um, uh, visits and, and needs, clearly ones that had been bereaved had higher needs as well, not surprisingly. You know, I think the challenge is, you know, it's great to publish a great paper, but like, you know, how do we actually translate this to action on the ground? And so, you know, um, I will say that uh, since you're an Ontarian and, and, and familiar with this stuff, that POGO in its last, uh, which is our pediatric oncology group of Ontario, in their last five-year plan is one of their top three priorities, prioritize psychosocial resources, right? So that is, there's clearly a need um, and hopefully that will translate into reality on the ground as well. 
Okay, really importantly, and I'm being reminded um, <laughs> via chat from Maureen Smart, who's a licensed clinical social worker and a team mm -hmm. member at MIB, who helps us with our programs uh, that I was talking about earlier. She says uh, MIB offers a peer visitor program where oh, we cool. train a certified peer visitor training program called Ambassador Agents. Uh, these trained survivors are matched with kids um, and caregiver to caregiver. Uh, contact is either verbal, in-person, text, email, or through video gaming. We have a gamer agent program. Um, again, a small population. Can you offer any thoughts on the benefits of these relationships? Do they potentially mitigate AYA mental health struggles throughout survivorship? Five plus years out. Um, that's it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, not um, nothing beyond anecdotal which is not nothing, right? Like anecdotal experience is really powerful as well. Um, but, but I'm not sure there's a ton of evidence past that beyond the very powerful stories and testaments that we, we get from individuals. Yeah, it is anecdotal, but I know just from our junior board and I'm almost a 10 year survivor, hearing what they, being able to talk about my experience and hearing what everybody else's experiences it, it makes you feel more normal going after, you know, after that conversation. And I, I know it's anecdotal, it's not a study, but it's, it's, gosh, it's really important. Okay, I know we have more questions, but um, Dr. Gupta has to dash, and I'm sure a lot of us do. So I'm gonna wrap it up by letting you know that, uh, speaking of support, um, we have our osteosarcoma resource packets. They're ready to go, and we're getting incredible feedback on this. Um, people have said, I wish my patient had this and had more information to begin with. And the patient families are saying, oh my gosh, I wish I would have had this diagnosis. So this is our osteosarcoma resource packet. It has our book, Osteosarcoma from our families to yours, resources from our partners at Osteosarcoma Institute, Osteosarcoma Project, and the Amputee Coalition. These are available to osteosarcoma families and to institutions who treat and serve osteosarcoma patients and families. You can go to our website to request this super valuable resource. It's free. Everybody should have it. Uh, coming up next week, Dr. Inez Lose of, of uh, University of Miami, Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center will be here. She's gonna talk about drug sensitivity testing for the treatment stratification of cancer patients. It's a really cool thing, you guys. Everybody should be on board with this. I love this, um, this research and this uh, what it's gonna translate to. Um, so that's it. I'm, I'm trying to like speed up and get Dr. Gupta on his way. Oh, you're uh, good. You're good. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Um, thank you, of course, to our guest, Dr. Gupta, for sharing your time with us today and your expertise on this so important topic that we need so much more research and more conversation around. Um, thank you to our panelists, Mia and Amy, and thank you all for being here with us. And we'll see you next week. Be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. You can also listen to Osteobytes via podcast wherever you get your podcast.